alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to my office, Shaykh. Hayakallah. I give that to you. There's no dispute about this one. We're not in Valley Ranch Islamic Center. This is my office. MashaAllah. This is my Shaykh Ammar. My Shaykh Yasser. All mine. I give you that. This is all yours. I'll take the best before you leave. This is smooth. That's mashaAllah to Shaykh. Welcome to everyone joining in. Alhamdulillah, this is a special edition of the uh, of the After Hours uh, podcast. Very excited. Alhamdulillah, we get to be in person and we get to have, uh, mashallah, Sheikh Yasser Burjas out of all people. Alhamdulillah, uh, no one more more worthy of the proper production, you know, than Sheikh Yasser. <coughs> he kind of demands it. He says no Zoom. <laughs> You know, you can't do Zoom, it needs four cameras and stuff. Like, Maybe fly to Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fly me from my home, right? <laughs> Flying you from your home. But um, alhamdulillah, on a serious note, Sheikh, we're really, really happy to have you. Alhamdulillah. I don't think there's probably anyone I've had more after hours discussions with than you about the Dawah and about the current scene. So it's kind of cool that we get to have this on camera, alhamdulillah, and we get to have Sheikh Ammar with us as well. It is more like the, the late uh, night Ramadan conversation in the office before we go out there and be there able to go. come back subhanallah. there you go subhanallah yeah. subhanallah you're right so that's the, the if you ever watch late night reflections Sheikh Yasser and, and I we, we we always have our conversations in the office alhamdulillah Mashallah. before we come out and after we come out over uh, over tamar and qahwa wow. uh, you know whatever else comes for, for Ramadan fueling the Ramadan nights tamar and qahwa bring it back to you that's right. We should we should have brought it. But Sheikh Yasser Ahlul Sahra, we we appreciate you coming. And um, you know, Alhamdulillah, I think for everyone that that knows you, obviously, um, they probably know you in in one particular way. Maybe they know you through Al Maghrib, or they know you through Valley Ranch Islamic Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this this will give us an opportunity, inshallah, not just to understand the da'wah a bit more from your perspective and how you've seen sort of the scene change. But also about about yourself, your own journey, and and the different contexts that you've been in uh, with the dawah. And uh, you know, I, I, I'll preface this, and I told you this outside, and I tell people, I say, you know, Sheikh Yasser Burjas is my kid's imam. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids see Sheikh Yasser Burjas as their imam, which is really nice. We moved to the community as a family, alhamdulillah, to uh, to be with you and, and, and your family, and, and just this growing community of Valley Ranch, and we've seen it grow over the last. Decade now, subhanAllah, over the last decade almost, you know, coming together. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 you saw, I think we even have a picture of me and Dima when they're like two together. And yep. now they're, yep. they're like going on 13 together and they're, they're, they're buddy buddy, alhamdulillah, daughters. And alhamdulillah. my kids attend your dars, they attend your classes, they cite you when they want an easier fatwa because I'm much more conservative <laughs> than you. I mean, if, if people didn't know, obviously they, I tell them you can't do the, following the fatwa that you like. They try to use your easy fatwas and my easy fatwas and then try to make their own madhab in a Sudaiman and Jasi madhab that doesn't work. But it's beautiful, you know, really that they have an imam, alhamdulillah. That you know, actually, this is something very unique. Uh, people don't understand that uh, imam's kids, they are very special, um, a special club, really. Yeah. Not necessarily in the most positive way sometimes. Because the focus and the attention on Imam's kids is different and unique, and as a result, there is so much pressure on them. Yeah, really, it's not easy for our kids to survive these any kind of uh, uh, that kind of attention right. in a positive way or a negative way. Allah understand. Uh, yeah, finding uh, our daughters bonding together, it it because I think they have similar backgrounds. Maybe they have similar struggles that they go through in relationship to their parents, obviously, and their fathers. Uh, alhamdulillah, I'm very happy for them really to uh, have somebody to talk to. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. And we have, you know, we talk about the development of the masjid, youth directors as well. Like it's, yes. it's nice, mashallah, that we have the imams, we have the youth directors uh, that both do an amazing job, mashallah. Alhamdulillah. So Abdullah, my son, looks up to Sheikh Yusuf Fakir. And um, so looks up to bef- Amin, before so. this turns into a Valley Ranch conversation. Oh, you're here. So I, I, <laughs> let's just let's I just forgot, introduce Sheikh Yasser. <laughs> it's like you guys are talking like they're in their living room for real. Clearly, um, <laughs> welcome, welcome to late night reflections <laughs> from the inferior city of Houston. So uh, Sheikh Yasser is Imam of Valley Ranch Islamic Center. He is a senior instructor at a Maghrib Institute for over, I mean, since 2003, since it was founded, pretty much. Uh-huh. You've been yeah. in. Uh, a valedictorian of the University of Medina. You graduated in 1996. No. And you were an imam in El Paso. When did you come to the United States, Sheikh? So I arrived actually um, 
mid to late 2000. Mid to so late 2000. Mid, mid 2000 came for the interview and then moved uh, towards the late of 2000. To be specific, uh, subhanAllah, it's very interesting. It's October 22nd, which is like uh, this week, to be specific. MashaAllah. So we're celebrating 22 years of you being here. Pretty much. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. And I stayed in El Paso until um, 2009. So 2009. you came from uh, Medina? No, you went to Bosnia first. Yes. So in 1996, you went, uh, you graduated and then you went to Bosnia. Yes. And Bosnia is war-torn Bosnia at that point in time. Relief mm -hmm. work. You were there for a number of years, three four years? years, four years. You were there yeah. for four years, and then you came to the United States. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so that's Sheikh Yasser Bujas's story in a nutshell, bio. And now you can, can talk we, about, can yeah, you can go back to you. Right, let's, let's leave this the living room conversation. Clear, clear leg, let's include it. <laughs> clear leg. The, the, they, they try to be value branch, but they can't be value branch. Allah, Allah. Mashallah. We love, we love click, mashallah, clear leg Islamic center. They have their own glory, mashallah. Amazing vibe at that community. And to be fair, when anyone moves to Houston, or around the area and say, where should I move? I say, you should go to Clear Lake Islamic Center. So I've been sending my people to your masjid as well. And they're in the law in that community when they can't make it to Valley Ranch Islamic Center. To Valley Ranch Islamic Center. But Sheikh, not like you, I think let's let's actually start from there. You have done da'wah or been involved in taking care of people and teaching them the deen in so many different contexts. Like when I think of Bosnia, and Bosnia to me, subhanAllah, I, it's to you it's literally like home you know to me when I went there it felt like home because we grew up with it as sort of the tragedy in the background we had refugees come here and <clears throat> my mother I used to write poetry about Bosnia and I remember actually reciting that poetry to people in Bosnia Sarajevo and, and, no. and Srebrenica and going there connecting beautiful people but you were there in the middle of the war I mean picking up the pieces and then You've got that war-torn climate, and then you've got sort of the hyper-individualistic, very easy climate, you know, suburban Texas, right? Like, mm. talk to us about what does da'wah look like in war and dealing with people in war? Uh, SubhanAllah, when we went to Bosnia, <clears throat> I went right after the war was over, and then when they started rebuilding the country. But it was still completely divided. Divided geographically, divided politically, divided ethnically, divided even actually... Um, and all aspects was very divided <clears throat> within the same city, like in Sarajevo, for example. There's a Serbian section and there's you have the, 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 the Bosnian section. And each one of them has their own national flags in the same city, in the same neighborhood. You will be driving in one street and then you have Bosnian uh, flags and then suddenly you go across a stop sign and then you over your, already in, in, in a complete different territory with different flags and so on. So it was really, it was still dangerous. It was still uh, not easy to be around there. So to try to assess what we're going to do, um, it was more of like a survival uh, kind of mode. Many, many people there, they still lacked uh, a lot of the basic needs. Um, they didn't, love, they didn't love, live in their houses, so they were refugees uh, from one village to the other one, from the mountains to other mountains. So like, they're all over the place. Um, we've seen areas like I, I was honored to serve yani, in, uh, in a small village that was hosting more than 2,000 of the Srebrenica victims their families, obviously. And you go there, subhanAllah, in one single house, you have three or four families. And there's all young families, all women and children, no men. So in that situation, I mean, where do we start? Do we start uh, feeding them? Do we start, you know, taking care of them, this and that? Or do we start teaching them the, the, the basic of our deen and give them the identity? It was really a big challenge. But I think, alhamdulillah, our focus in our agencies, uh, we have different departments. So um, we let the whole humanitarian aspect of giving food and, and providing uh, services to, to the shelter and relocating them back again to their villages into different agencies and different active departments. We were focusing on the human resources, meaning how can we make sure that instead of giving people fish, we actually teach them fishing. And uh, that was one of our main focus. But alhamdulillah, yani we had uh, uh, our uh, leader, the team, he decided that, look, we need to see where are the, the, the brightest kids we can find in local communities. We can uh, start making halaqat of Quran, halaqat of Arabic language, for example. And then we try to see from these kids, inshallah ta'ala, who are uh, the, the most, the brightest ones. And then hopefully we can find sponsorship. We send them to Muslim countries where they can learn a skill, learn a degree, and then come back to serve their communities. 
And I believe, alhamdulillah, in the, in the course of four years, that's what we were focusing on. In addition, of course, to working on the humanitarian aspect of the, of the cult, uh, country. But alhamdulillah, I was the main teacher in many of these programs. So I would teach and we did camps as well too to the, for these youth. So finally, we were able to um, collect out of hundreds of students that we taught over uh, the, the couple of years to uh, highlight 200 of them. And alhamdulillah, we were able to send them uh, to Jordan uh, to study uh, Arabic language. And then after one year, we made an assessment program. Who, those who did not do very well, as expected, we brought them back to become translators to the community, to the other speakers and so on. And those who did well, alhamdulillah, we kept them there and we went to different departments. So some went to business uh, college, some they went to Sharia, some they went to Arabic language and so on. And subhanAllah, after four years of studying or six years being there, many of them came back. Some people, they, mashallah, they even went further to masters and PhDs and some of them they went to Medina, some went to Azhar. Some students even went to Malaysia at the time, alhamdulillah, to further their education. And now, just two years ago, was my first visit to Bosnia after all these years. And I was so happy to see the results, subhanAllah. It was just impressive, really, that the number of students who, uh, who came back and started small businesses employing other people. Some of them, mashallah, there's instructors in certain uh, colleges and, and, and programs. Um, some of these uh, people also becoming, mashallah, active in, in, in the politics of the local communities. Uh, some of them become uh, national imams in other countries and mashallah, many, many beautiful things. So the fact is that these people, they had, there was a need and they felt the, the obligation to do that. Here in America, it's different. Uh, it's very easy. It's very convenient. So the demand to learn is, um, is not there. It becomes more optional. And it's very, you find a, a big struggle really to convince people to take that path and that route in their lives. And even, even when they come to study it, the urgency of why we're needing this for, it's not uh, very obvious for many people. So you start, you find a lot of our young, mashallah, sure. brothers and what sisters. Was, what was the urgency in Bosnia, if you don't mind? The urgency is that there was nothing there, literally. Okay. Like many people were killed in the war, the communities were destroyed, the infrastructure was gone. So to rebuild the community, you need experts. You need educated people. You need people who know what they were talking about, what they're going to be doing for the community. And that wasn't there for them. So where, where did the interest in the deen come from? So did you find, number one, people were really interested in studying Islam? And if so, where is that interest coming from? So if, if I'm in a country that has no infrastructure and all of that, is my first question going to be, I need to study Arabic, for example? Mm -hmm. And if so, what was propelling them to do that? I think many of the students that we were dealing with, they came as a byproduct of the war itself. Because what happened when, of course, when people when in Bosnia, um, uh, the, the whole international community let down the Bosnian society. And uh, so the people of Bosnia, they start finding uh, sympathy and, and support and help from, uh, um, I would say, individuals in Muslim countries. And also from some Muslim countries that try to uh, influence uh, the, the, the situation. They're like for a few leaders from the Muslim world came visiting Bosnia during the war itself. One of them was actually uh, Benazir Bhutto from Pakistan at the time. She came visit and she was one of the few leaders who went through the tunnel of hope that was dug under the, 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 the airport just to you know, bring life to, to the city of Sarajevo at the time. So that kind of you know, attention, suddenly people, they realize everybody's against them mm. because of their original identity, which was being Muslims. Although they themselves, a few of them were really identified as Muslims. They so were identifying culture. made them more attached to their Islamic identity. I think it was, for them, it's just like a realization, like, look, the, all of us, all of these people are against us because we're Muslim. So therefore, you know what? They're going to attach themselves to Islam Muslim. and uh, become Muslims. Mm. Of course, this, during the wartime though, it was, it was more urgent and more important for them to identify as being Muslim. But subhanAllah, once the war was over, and uh, the things get back again to uh, 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 normal, I would say, or well, not normal, but at least better than the, what it was in the, in the wartime. Uh, and that kind of attachment to the identity slowly and gradually start being challenged with European mandates and all the stuff and uh -huh. so forth. But a lot of people after that, alhamdulillah, became like an option. Being religious became an option right now. Mm. And alhamdulillah, it survived all these years. And mashallah, we, you go back there, Hijab is all everywhere, yeah. alhamdulillah. That's something to be happy and proud to see, alhamdulillah. 
you go to the masjid, a lot of youth come to pray in the masjid as well too, alhamdulillah. Uh, people identify, you know, easily with being Muslim. Still, there's a big challenge to, uh, um, you know, to continue with that. Uh, because again, the situation in Basra is never really stable, uh, politically speaking. Mm. But alhamdulillah, overall, mashallah, the, the, the result of uh, that time of the people who went to study Islam and came back, mashallah, it was great. And I think uh, right after the war, the Muslim identity was so strong and so beautiful that a lot of people wanted to study it. They wanted to identify with it. They wanted to know what they've been missing all these years. I think that's what encouraged many of these young people to join and, and, and stay with the, with the program. To your point, when, when I went there, I was actually really happy to see these young people. And their way to the dean was entirely different than the way of their parents, right? I mean, no. the trauma, it's still fresh. It's, it's of course two decades. It's not that long ago. And there's always sort of the whispering of genocide in the background, right? But like, subhanAllah, to see these young people that found their love of deen no. uh, organically and individually is really beautiful. And it shows you that the da'wah is different for people because the circumstances are different for people Of course, well. it is, it is. I mean, for us here in America, Alhamdulillah, we do have the luxury of uh, teaching whatever we want to teach, however you want to teach it, you have the resources for it and all that stuff and so on. But over there, there are a lot of limitations. Um, some of it is financial resources. Not everybody has the luxury to, to live, you know, Alhamdulillah, comfortably to find time to go and attend the program or halaq or pay for it, for example. That's something that's uh, not for everybody. Um, even recently when we went on the uh, blessed voyage with Al-Maghrib to Bosnia, we spent there about a week or so. I had a lecture for the locals, really, in English. And I wasn't expecting that many to show up, but I was surprised. There were quite a good number of people, subhanAllah, uh, who came to attend the, the, the lecture in English. Um, but then I realized that a lot of them, they're also expats. Mm. They came from other places, from, from Canada, from Europe. From uh, Some of them, they, they, they lived there for some time, and, and now they're back in Bosnia. Some of them, they, uh, uh, they attended it, you know, um, uh, because again, they learned the English language when they were abroad. But then, alhamdulillah, still we had some many, many locals who learned English in, in town. 20 years ago, when I was in Bosnia, it was so hard to find someone to speak English. Extremely difficult. Because it wasn't the most common language there. It was whether Russian or, or German. Did you speak English, Sheikh, when you went to Bosnia? In Bosnia, I was speaking, you know, kind of like quite um, reasonable English, I would say. What I learned from high school. Okay. Right? But we had to force to learn the language, obviously, over there, the Bosnian language, alhamdulillah. Can you speak some Bosnian, for sure? Me? Yeah. Oh, come on, man. Don't no, I'm I've yeah. never heard you speak Bosnian. Then I'll go preach at Bosansky, which means I don't speak English. Bosnian, yeah, I don't speak it very well now. Yeah. But you said that nicely, so. Alhamdulillah. It sounded good. Sort of like my Urdu, where even if First of all, all of all of our Bosnians who are watching this, you can comment and let us know, you know, how the Sheikh's Bosnian was, inshallah ta'ala, let us know. You know Chavapi and you know Vala. Znam, znam. Znam Chavapi. But I'm living in Zawadovic for four years. Which means I lived in Zawadovic for four years. Allah Akbar. That's what it means. Inshallah. Sheikh, you know, you're reminding me, one of the major shifts that's happened in the United States over the past 20 years is the emergence of the immigrant imam who speaks English, right? Yes, so 20 years ago, you know, it was all translations and things of that nature. Yep. Um, your English is better than mine, Sheikh. So how how is it? No, it's true. Sheikh Kassid is always using amazing words of like, how do you do this? So how did you go about learning English? Do you have a talent for language? Uh, do you have a particular process that you went through? And number two, how did you go about learning uh, Bosnian? You did learn Bosnian while you were I there. I did, yeah. So number one, what's what's the motivation behind doing it? You could easily be the imam who, you know, broken English here, just, you know, everybody else has to learn what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But you took it upon yourself to basically, you know, master the language. Honestly, I think it's, uh, um, it's in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, really the main motivation for me was a simple ayah in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, no messenger have we sent to the people, but speak in the tongue of his own people. That was my main motivation. So when I went to Bosnia, I tried to teach them Arabic to make it easier for me. Yeah. <laughs> it took longer than expected. Besides, by the time we taught them some Arabic, we sent them to Jordan. <laughs> like, oh, Lord. So we have to learn the language. And at that time, subhanAllah, where we live, because again, there's no infrastructure, there wasn't really an institute where you could uh, use to do that to go and study the language officially and formally, unless you go all the way to Sarajevo, all the way to Tuzla, for example, major cities that they have institutes or universities mm. that can teach you the language. So I had to depend on 
on the street, basically, of learning from the people. Uh, a book, I remember Sheikh Imam Shpandim, Hafidullah, uh, his father, his mom, his mom and his father were visiting actually Amman, Jordan at the time. I was, I was, I was temporarily Amman before I left to Bosnia. So he's a Bosnian peer at the University of Medina. So. He was actually Macedonian. So okay. his, his father would speak a little bit of uh, uh, Bosnian, but uh, him and his parents speak Albanian. So eventually he brought me, a, his father brought me a book. I still have it until this day, from mm. back in, 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 uh, in 2000, or actually 1997, 1996. So he gave it to me and, and I used it to learn the language. I still have it. That was cassette back then as well. And a dictionary. So that was the thing. So learn from the people, read and speak, read and speak. I don't claim that I learned the, the perfect English, uh, Bosnian language, but I spoke very well there during those four years. SubhanAllah, it hasn't been 20 years right now since I've uh, practiced it professionally. This past summer, when we went to Bosnia again, I spent a week over there. And SubhanAllah, all of a sudden, all these words coming back again, naturally, without even trying. Like even I look at some of this, like, oh, this is this. I speak it, the word, the word comes out immediately. MashaAllah. So the language doesn't really die. Mm. It's just it's hidden right now because now a new language is taken over, the English language. When I first came to the U.S., as I was given the khutbah in English, trying to give the khutbah in English, I keep throwing a lot of Bosnian words on the member. <laughs> You're just trying to be close <laughs> enough, huh? <laughs> it's foreign word anyway, right? They are foreign languages. But I, subhanAllah, looking back right now, when I go back to my, my first khutbahs I gave in the U.S., yeah. I still have records of this khutbah actually in Arabic, subhanAllah. I'm just like, oh my Lord, how these people were able to, to understand what I was saying, mm. really, because I have the transition in English language. So when I came again, the first thing came to my mind, look, this is it, the language is English, time to switch to English language. So I put so much energy, alhamdulillah, in learning it. The way I did it, really, I tried to learn the English language just like a child would learn English language. So I would go and to the, to the public library, and I would read actually uh, kids' uh, stories. I thought you were going to say Sesame Street. But, uh, I, did I did that. Okay. I did that. I read all the Sesame Street series. I read that the Cinderella books and all the stuff and so on. Just pick up words just like the kids would do, really, mm. slowly and gradually. What about Reader's Digest? Did you do that? That was came later, Sheikh. Okay, right. <laughs> At some point. No. No, no, for me, actually, I anything I put my hand on, I would read it. For example, even the, 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 the milk jug, the juice, for example. Just mm. read the ingredients. Mm. Just like that. Anything that has the English, I want said, look, I don't have much time. I need to start becoming good with, with learning the language. So I would say within a few months of the very beginning, I used to do the khutbah in Arabic, and then there was a brother who was supposed to be translating the khutbah for me. So I tell him, okay, help me out over here. I'll give you the khutbah on Saturday for the next, for the next Friday. Bring it to me no later than Wednesday. So I can at least type it up, and then I practice this so I can go and remember Yani ready for the khutbah. He never brought it to me before Jumu'ah. Yani uh, actually, always bring it right an hour before Salat al-Jumu'ah. On his way to the masjid, he stops by. He goes, sorry, Sheikh, for the, for the delay. Uh, okay, Habibi. SubhanAllah. So I have to practice this yeah. quickly. And later on, I realized a lot of that translation is just like uh, honestly, street translation. Yeah. yeah. He made a great effort. But it wasn't the member level. Yani. Mm. Then after that, he traveled. So we switched to another brother who traveled, so within less than a year, I became dependent on Allah subhanahu wa foremost, <laughs> an electronic dictionary. And then later on came, came Sheikh Shpandim as well. I thought you were gonna say me, like I taught you some English. Allah. <laughs> I'm just talking because another Imam, yani. Imam Shpandim was still studying in Medina. Yeah. SubhanAllah, so uh, that's when we, we get to know each other from there. So I write the khutbah, I translate the khutbah myself in English. I type it up and I send it to him. But back then was Skype and was, uh, of course, you know, the email. So he would review it and send it back to me. MashaAllah. That's amazing. That was for about a year. You're in El Paso, Texas. He's in Medina. Guess where he is now? He's in Dallas, he's isn't in Dallas. he? <laughs> <laughs> he's in Richardson yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah, <laughs> but you're, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're, 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 email, you're sending an email for him to translate for you or check your translation. He did that for about a year, alhamdulillah, or so. It was mashallah. a beautiful experience. MashaAllah. We did that together, MashaAllah. And then uh, <coughs> after that, I decided, you know what, that's enough. I need to do, learn the English professional right now. So I told the board of the masjid, I need you guys to, to pay for my English uh, training. So they said, of course. So we went to the university, to the language department over there. And I was trying to put the application on and put everything. And the lady, she tells me, who are you signing up for? I said, for me. She goes, you don't need it. I'm like, what? 
She goes, you don't need it. This program is not going to get you better than what you do right now. Mm. You're doing great already. Mm. I said, okay, well, thank you for, you know, for, for the compliment, but I really need to improve my, my... She goes, you speak better than the graduates of this program. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. What am I going to do now? So there was another, another uh, institute that teaches, uh, uh, I would say, actually, dialect and pronunciation. So I signed up for this. The same thing. They said, you're going to be wasting your money. So since then, I did not really do much except just keep reading and practicing and reading and practicing. And I didn't have any problem making mistakes. I was just about to ask you that. Because that's when they say children are able to develop language, one of the things that's mentioned is that they don't have a fear of mistakes. Adults have a fear of mistakes, which compromises their ability to actually experiment. True. So your lack of fear of mistakes, meaning you're being corrected by people left and right, are you oh, asking I, them to correct you? I laugh with them. Mm. If they laugh at my joke, not my jokes, well, it's, it's a joke for them, obviously. Yeah. When I make a, a mistake in a pronouncement or using the misused words and so on, I just laugh with them. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I agree. It's funny. Alhamdulillah. There were moments of embarrassment, obviously, yeah. you know, but subhanAllah, it's just the courage. They have to do it. Yeah. And again, reading, I used to read, of course, uh, uh, high profile uh, papers because I need to know, I need to learn new vocabulary. Yeah. Especially when you, when you teach classes of fiqh and usul and this and that, you have to learn the, the language for it. So you go into English books of usul, papers on usul and fiqh and so on. So learn the, 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 the Legal words. terminology. Or all this all terminology, that. obviously, of course. It wasn't that simple and easy. But alhamdulillah, I think uh, it became at some point very natural. Alhamdulillah. Sheikh Nasser, we interviewed uh, Imam Siraj and everyone has an Imam Siraj story. Yes, so of course. So I want to hear your Imam. I want, I want them to hear your Imam Siraj story as well. And then we oh, can talk about the American Dawah. Because your experience <laughs> with American Dawah is even before Bosnia, right? Yes, it is, actually. As a matter of fact, I think he was my inspiration to where I am today. Really? I keep telling the people that. I said, that when I was in high school, alhamdulillah, I was active in Dawah since I was a kid. So I was in the masajid as youth director in the masjid okay, and so on. So when I was in high school, maybe about 16 years old at the time, maybe 15, 16 years old. And and that's when the the debate that happened in Louisiana. Is there a photo anywhere of a 15-year-old Sheikh Yasser Bajas in Kuwait uh, with uh, teaching at a masjid or anything? Maybe in a camp, but not teaching in the masjid. Okay. So Back then, the luxury of cameras was not for everybody. Okay, okay. Not like today. Sheikh so Yasser was wrestling bears and stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was watching the TV. At the time, they were broadcasting the, t- the, the debate between Jimmy Swaggart and Sheikh Ahmadidat, rahimahullah ta'ala. Mm. And it has subtitle. And I was just like mesmerized by that debate. I love that stuff, subhanAllah. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And, but out of all the debate that they were broadcast, they were doing it on, I think, four episodes every Friday. In the evening, they bring one of those episodes. I was so mesmerized and so amazed by the, the, uh, uh, the MC of the program, the entire actually debate. Mashallah. I didn't know who he was at the time, eventually. Yeah. But he was oh, such man. a beautiful African-American young man with nice, beautiful gray suit. Eventually, I said, one day I'm going to be like this man. Allahu Akbar. That's what I said to myself. Ajeeb. Oh, yeah. And the MC, not Sheikh Ahmed. The MC. Well, I said, like, because his name was, was fascinating to me. The first time I heard someone by that name. Uh, so eventually, um, at some point, uh, of course, obviously went to Medina. And then, uh, but the, sorry, before we go to Medina, subhanAllah. I used to always be the top of my, my class. Yeah, and he always the top student of my class. So in high school, the senior high school year, like what they do in the Arabic world and the Arab world, uh, they always, uh, they always uh, publish the names of the, the, the students and the top students and they interview them in TV and so on. Everybody would expect me to be that top student. Everybody expecting that, subhanAllah. But that year, relatively speaking, I failed miserably. Because mm. I know people, they're going to say, like, you call this failing? Because I still got actually a 93.8, yani. yeah. and, which is still A. Yeah, but for me, literally, people they're coming home, offering condolences for my mom. Yeah. It's just like, what happened to him? Why is this? Why is that? Everybody's wondering what happened. Honestly, I don't know what happened. It just I didn't I didn't do my regular ninety nine point two, ninety nine point five, for example. I love how you remember the decimals. 93.8, 99.2. it hurt? <laughs> <laughs> and it still hurts from that time. <laughs> well, subhanAllah, eventually I tried to apply to local to the university and they uh, refused to accept me there. So I had to go out. I went to Imarat to study engineering. Then the war started in Kuwait. The 93.8, you couldn't get into the... Could not. Allahu Akbar. Four points in the, in the total they needed extra 
to allow mm. me to be among the students who get accepted. So I had to go to Emirat, UAE, started engineering there, and then the war started in Kuwait in 1990. So we had to stop and come back to Kuwait. I spent the whole war time there in Kuwait, subhanAllah. So the whole career just kind of, you know, just became unknown all of a sudden. After the war was over, I had the moment of spirituality, subhanAllah, went to Umrah with a friend, and then we got accepted to Medina. There in Medina, which was something I'd never expected, because who am I? I'm like an intruder on all these Maulanas that come study with you, subhanAllah. I end up becoming the, the valedictorian. And uh, Sheikh Muhammad Sharif was there, and he was at the time, uh, he, he, I was actually my third year when he joined. He was asking me, he says, you need to come to Canada, come to the US, you will do a great job. I said, no, thank you very much, I'm not interested. At that time, somehow I said, I'm not gonna come. We finished, I went to Bosnia, and there in Bosnia, we uh, uh, we spent the four years, and then I got a phone call from my sister, she says, hey, they want somebody in El Paso, Texas, why don't you come and visit? I said, I'm happy here. I have uh, been promoted, I've become the director of the central region for the, for the organization. I don't wanna move out of this place. She goes, why don't you come and visit? You haven't seen your brother for 13 years. So that kind of like a convincing moment. I said, you know what, why not? Just a visit. I came to El Paso, I loved it. SubhanAllah. I said, you know what, there's a huge potential for Dawah over here. And then eventually we stayed, alhamdulillah. It was that that moment that, that I realized had a connection at the um, regional mass, uh, MSA actually, MSA um, uh, conference in Atlanta, Georgia. When I was on the stage, there was Wissam Sharif and there was Imam Siraj Wahaj and myself was on the, on that panel. I'm just like, is that for real? And then I told Imam Siraj, I said, um, this was my first meeting with him actually. I said, do you mind if I share a personal story between us? He looks at me and goes like, who are you basically? Like, okay, but okay, fine. <laughs> so I told the people, I said, look, I said, SubhanAllah, this is for me, this is a surreal moment. Like now I realize that every wrong turn that was going on in my life was actually to get me here. Mashallah. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was directing the whole qadr to get you where you wanted to be. Because I said to them more than 20 plus years ago, I said to myself, one day I want to be like this man. And this man is right now actually is here with me on the stage. So I never thought that this moment will come in real life, but everything went back again full circle to bring you back next to the man that you said, I want to be like this man. Mashallah. Like failing in my high school, not finishing my engineering in the UAE, uh, the war in Kuwait even, subhanAllah. All these circumstances just lead you where you want it to be. And then that's when I told, I asked Sheikh Imam Siraj Wahaj one time, I said, Sheikh Imam Siraj, he says, what happened to that gray suit that you were wearing on that, on that uh, debate? <laughs> He started laughing. He goes, it's not, it wasn't even mine. <laughs> he said, Imam Ahmad did that. He insists that I, <laughs> I, had, I had to wear a suit. So I had to borrow it from some, some friend. And he said, that was it. The last time I wore a suit. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think he's ever worn a suit since. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you something crazy. Um, it's, it's, subhanAllah, it's not coincidence. It's Qadr. No. The first time I shared a stage with Imam Siraj mm. was Ikna Atlanta Regional Convention 2008. And I remember like, like freaking out. Like, I was like, I can't, you know, I've attended so much of his, uh, so many of his lectures. I've invited him to Louisiana. I, I knew him at that point, but I'm like, mm. they got me speaking next to Imam Salaz. I'm like, I can't speak next to Imam Salaz. You know, like, what are you guys oh, doing? And I remember that moment. It's one of the most vivid moments of my life. SubhanAllah, so sharing a stage with him and apologizing profusely to him before starting. Like, sorry, this is bad. I don't know why they put me here to speak next to you. And, you know, and... and Somehow I want people to amazing. understand that the influence Imam, Imam Siraj Wahaj on the da'wah went beyond the ocean. <coughs> it wasn't just locally, and here in the US, subhanAllah, way in the Middle East, I was in Kuwait at the time, and completely a young kid, 16 years old, and seeing a random you know, man on the stage, was his demeanor, his akhlaq, the way he was conducting the, the, the debate, it was just like, wow, I want to be like this man. MashaAllah. And lo and behold. Yeah, Imam Siraj. You have Imam Shpandim, who was in Medina while you're in El Paso and wow. helping you with khutbahs. Now you both live 20 minutes from each other. Yeah, yeah. And you have Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif, rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, Sheikh, we dedicated this podcast to Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif, rahimahullah. Uh, wow. The inspiration of it. Um, yeah. yeah, subhanAllah. Sheikh Muhammad, uh, I, I keep telling people, look, I mean, all what we see in terms of the da'wah, how it shifted in America, in the West, in America in particular, 
by the grace of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost and then by uh, um, the vision of this man. Wallahi, I think it's his vision. The da'wah as we see it today in America, a lot of it had to do with how he wanted it to, to be and, and how he saw it that it should be in America. And mashallah, he did a great job in, in doing that and not taking credit of it because that wasn't really his, his major thing. He was just wanted to bring the best to the community, alhamdulillah. And, and, and I always keep telling people, when we were in, uh, in Medina, Sheikh Muhammad was somehow getting frustrated from the way knowledge was taught in Medina, how uh, the, the school was run in Medina University. And I could see, just like many of these Western students, subhanAllah, when they come, they want to quit. And uh, so I, I kind of calmed him down. And, and, and so, and so I, I taught him a few you know, tips here and there on how to benefit from what he studied and how he studied it. Um, but when I came here to the U.S., he was the one who taught me how to, li- to deliver that. So I keep telling people, look, Sheikh Muhammad, he, I taught him how to gain knowledge, and he taught me how to deliver it. It's yeah, beautiful. It, yeah, it just, uh, it was such an unbelievable thing. Because uh, the way we met was randomly, in, in, uh, in, not randomly, randomly to us, but to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's another moment of qadr, yani. That I meet him at uh, uh, Texas the Texas Dawa conference back in 2003, I believe, or 2002 or three, and that wasn't even in, uh, in, in the elevator. And that's when he when, when he said, "Oh, my Sheikh, oh, Sheikh Muhammad, so what are you doing here?" I said, "I'm I'm coming to attend the program, inshallah." He goes, "No, no, you're going to talk." I says, "Come on, man, I'm just here with my family. I wanted I would, my English was not I wasn't confident yet with the English at the time." You're, th- you're three years into the U.S. at that point. Very much. He goes, "No, you're going to speak." And you're going to teach, inshallah ta'ala, that, uh, uh, you know, the history of Islamic law. I'm like, naam. <laughs> I couldn't even pronounce the title. You're like, the I'm still title. trying to translate my khutbahs. I'm sending them over to Shabindim. I couldn't even pronounce the, tit- the title of the lecture in English, let alone to speak it freely, you know, and, and mention it. Somehow. But wallah, he insisted. He said, you're going to have to do it. So he spoke with Sheikh Walid at the time, yani, subhanAllah. And uh, Sheikh Walid didn't even know who I am. I'd, Eventually, we did that, and the rest is just history. He Mashallah. invited me a few months later to come back to Houston while he was teaching the Tariq uh, al-Khulafa, the, the conquest, subhanAllah, class. What mm-hmm. a, an experience, yani. And then uh, from there, I got my personal training with him, which I still have the notes. Yeah, I saw you post on Instagram. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was another moment. It was like, wow, subhanAllah, I just found these notes that speak history since Mashallah. 2003. And mashallah, I, I give the credit and the barakah of, uh, of the da'wah that we do today back to Sheikh Muhammad. Muhammad al-Sharif, rahimahullah ta'ala. Sheikh, um, so you as an imam and you as a person, one of, one of your qualities that seems to keep appearing is the idea of you growing into fulfilling whatever the need is of your community. So if it's, I need to learn a language, it's I need to learn a language. When you arrived in the U.S., you weren't known as the sheikh of marriage and love and, and these types of things. But I'm assuming you you went through an education process when you came to the United States. Is that what you did? I, I blame it on the Maghrib Institute. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Allahu Akbar. <laughs> yeah, subhanAllah. I remember first time when was Sheikh Muhammad. It was here in Dallas, one of those moments uh, when we started trying to open a chapter in Dallas. Dallas was very difficult at the time. Yani. So we were discussing saying, um, which class we should start first and so forth. So he was suggesting uh, something that has to do with family. And I said, look, I cannot teach people fiqh al-usra and fiqh family before teaching them what fiqh is all about. So he goes, what do you suggest? So I suggested to teach, to teach the core evolved, the history of Islamic law. He goes, you got it. Khalas, you teach this one. And then the second one is, uh, what do we do? So we start thinking about, okay, which class would it be? Then we decided to do something we call it, uh, it's fiqh al-usra. I, using the lame titles, and says, we'll call it the fiqh al-usra. Fiqh al-family. <laughs> fiqh al-family. No, no, no. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, we're going to call it the fiqh of love. Yes, salam. <laughs> He's always had those moments. Always has his hands. He was going curled. like that in the hotel room, the fiqh of love. He was. He's basically, his eyes always up there. He sees beyond the walls. Oh, mashallah. Yeah, he sees beyond the time that he was living. Yeah. He goes, we're going to call the fiqh, or fiqh, al- the fiqh of love. And I said, it's, I didn't know the words cheesy back then. I said, it's kind of something to that extent. I said, come on, man. They said, he goes, no, nah, we're going to call the fiqh of love. And you're going to teach, inshallah, the whole class and so forth. And we start developing the content. Alhamdulillah, I showed it to him and we approved it. And we start teaching the fiqh of love. And because of me trying to teach, of course, this, this material, we had to discuss love. We had to discuss human psychology. We had to discuss this, had to do that. 
So I had to take psychology class actually in, at the university in El Paso. I went to register and I took a class for psychology, human psychology. I took another class actually as well too. And then I started learning, you know, my own reading books on the subject and the matter and listen to podcasts. There were no podcasts back then, but YouTube and all that stuff. It just, it was a, a, a personal and effort really to get where we are. In addition to that, of course, experience, being an imam, dealing with people, start counseling people, helping people out. And subhanAllah, right now, just we have the Muslim family consultant emerging out of all of this. And in 20 years, you've taught thousands of students the fiqh of love, whether it's in Maghrib cities or beyond in workshops and things like that and other masajid. Yeah, yeah. And you've, I'm sure, seen thousands of cases as an imam and beyond. Actually, the closets have evolved. So we taught the fiqh of love first which includes both the, the fiqh material and also the husband-wife material. Then from our students, as they evolve and emerge, mashallah, they say, we got married. We, are, we heard you. We understand. Now you guys get married. Uh, how can we keep, keep, how can we stay married? Yeah. So the idea of the love notes class came about. Mm-hmm. So this time we're going to focus on how keeping people uh, staying, staying married. So we discuss in this class, you know, the, um, the nature of relationship, the nature of marriage, the, the difficulties, the hardships, the, how, the rights and obligation and all that stuff. Alhamdulillah, it, it, it went all over the world. And then after some time, people said, Hey, we listened to you. We fell in love. We got married. We stayed married. Alhamdulillah. Now we have kids. We're having troubles. What do we do? So we developed a new class, which is the, 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 the protect this house, protect this house. Which is all about family and how to take care of your family and run your family and stay together alhamdulillah. And obviously there's more room to, to improve. So here in Valley Ranch, for example, one of the things we did for the past many years, when the board once asked me, said, you gotta, we need you to, to do, you know, parents asking for classes for the youth and for the, for the teenagers and so on. I said, sure, bismillah. So what did we do? I developed parenting workshops. I said, I'm going to teach the parents, not their kids. Beautiful. So there are tons of parenting workshops we did, mashallah. And I start taking some of these parenting workshops also, you know, in, in around the country. People, they ask for them and we go, we travel, we teach the people uh, techniques on, on parenting and so on. So it's evolving. Sheikh, how's your diagnosis of the Muslim family 2022? Is it healthy? Is it uh, on life support? It's, it's tough and hard, but I, you know, speaking the reality, I'm, I'm really worried that the, what the Prophet ﷺ has warned us against, يعني, it, it would come to, to become a realization. I, I love to be optimistic, obviously. There's always, alhamdulillah, يعني, khair in the Muslim ummah, as the Prophet ﷺ says, al-khayru fiyo fi ummati al qiyamah. There's always be khair in this ummah until the day of judgment. But being real and, and, and looking at reality, the Prophet ﷺ, one of the things he, suggest, he told, told us when it comes to the subject of marriage, he says, إِذَا جَاءَكُمْ مَنْ تَرْضَوْنَ دِينَ وَخُلُقَهُ فَزَوُّجُوهُ If someone comes to you, proposing to your daughters, and you're pleased with their akhlaq and their deen, then accept them in marriage. And then he said, إِلَّا تَفْعَلُوا تَكُنْ فِتْنَةٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَسَادٌ عَرِيدٌ If you're not going to do this, you're going to cause a lot of corruption, widespread corruption in the society. And this concerns me today for many, many reasons. The way uh, the fam- Muslim family evolved 20 years ago versus today, uh, our youth and their perception of marriage as well too, the criteria even to get married and what you get married about and for all this is shifting and changing. So, Sheikh, as you're seeing, I mean, we're overwhelmed as uh, imams, those that have taken courses and those that haven't taken courses. You no. know, I, um, personally, it's 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 tough to, to be able to keep up because it's also the breakdown doesn't really fit a particular mold. True. Right? You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like you know, my first imam position, January 2006. And I feel like the marriage and divorce dynamics were a lot simpler back then. Yep. You know, like the re- you could almost see the writing on the wall. It was technical, textbook divorce. Yeah. Now no. it's like both the marriages and the divorces are uh, catastrophic and that they, they, there is. are many complexities. There are many things where you can see that it's not just one thing anymore. And it's, it's it's hard to diagnose. By the time you diagnose something, you can't keep up with yeah. the next fallout and things of that sort. How is this kind of, what, what can we be doing differently as, as people of Dawah? I mean, what, what should, what do we do better as imams to be able to, to keep up with this and as a community be able no. to, to keep up with this? First of all, as imams, we are not trained 
to uh, uh, do marriage counseling. Right. Let's, let's make it clear. I don't claim to be certified marriage counselor, but we do pastoral counseling, which means using our spirituality and our, you know, um, training and certification you get from training and so forth to help people do that. Not all imams have that qualification, to be honest with you. So therefore, the first thing imams really need to do and understand is understand limitations. What are their limitations? If people come in to ask you uh, a fiqh question is one thing, but if they're going to ask you a question that demands and requires arbitration, they need to stop. They need to not mix giving fatwa versus giving verdict. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the imams give fatwas in a verdict situation that becomes catastrophic. Because everybody says, the imam said this, the imam said that, but you don't even know the context and the, the extent of the situation and so on. So I believe imams have two, one of two ways or paths to do that. Whether they really take some training in order for them to qualify to give people uh, the, the guidance they need through their marriages or, or even divorces, or learn to um, about the local resources that they have where they can divert people and direct people where they need to go. So if somebody wants to go for arbitration, we have certain agencies you can go to, for example. People need marriage uh, um, counseling. Alhamdulillah, we have these resources available for you to go to and so and so. As imams, we are not supposed to do all of these things. Talking about the involvement of the imam's role, right? So the masajid, for example, uh, from the very beginning, whenever they look for an imam, you look at the, at the profile, they're looking for 10 imams. Really, yeah. I mean, they look at an imam who speaks English and, and Urdu and Arabic and probably... In, good with youth and... Good with uh, youth and good counselor and good... Yeah. Yeah. I think they were working for Anbiya, not just Nabi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not one prophet. It's basically, it was it was an impossible mission back then. Yeah. But Alhamdulillah, I think our community is right now evolving to understand the imam cannot do everything. So they're accepting the imam to stay in the imam role while giving, delegating this this path to, to the people. So coming back to your point, Sheikhna, and some of the major issues I've seen so far, when it comes to the subject of marriage, for example, the, the, the reason why people are getting married is, uh, has shifted and changed. Back in the days, people get married because this is um, a moment in life. It's more of like a stepping uh, stone yani, for them. It's more like the, 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 the rite of passage into adulthood and so forth. Okay. So getting married, the average age used to be in the early 20s. But today, with the, with the extreme radical self-centric culture, not everybody wants to get married young anymore. We want to keep pushing it uh, to enjoy life individually as much as we can before even thinking about getting married. Which, why, which is why right now when people want to get married, they want to get married and still live single. It's just like they don't understand the responsibility like of being that. married. They want to get married and still be single. Literally, they just want to get married and they, everybody wants to have their, their, their singular you know, path to continue with it. Yeah. And when it comes to, of course, living a marital life, you can't live this kind of two dual lives. Which is why we have a lot of clashes. They haven't existed before. It's like in, in an individualistic society, there's no sense of collective progress. Therefore, the idea no. of becoming a collective when you no. get married, like it's, no, we're going to keep on and just benefit transactionally. Yeah. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when people used to get married, <clears throat> they know what to give, what to take because the culture of expect, the culture set the expectation for them. No matter where they are, whether they're educated or not. What to give, what to take? Do you mean gender norms? Like very much. It's not just that. Even, even, even when, 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 when they both working, because I've seen it. I've seen from the older generation. Both parents are working, so you have dual income, busy lives, this and that and so and so. But they work it out. They still worked it out. Today, among the younger generations, we, when we have still having uh, two working, uh, yani husband wife working right now households, it seems they're having hard time and difficulty keeping it together. Because the culture shifted. The understanding in the past, everybody knew that even though you're working, you still need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this as a husband and wife. But today, when you get married, there's no, there's no standard, you know, expectation from husband and wife anymore. The roof was, was completely removed and is now left even to the young couple to decide for themselves. So when you have two people are fighting for expectations and they keep pushing it up and down, obviously they're going to rip it apart, which is why we have in all these issues today among young couples. Today, I see a lot of young people, they focus so much on the event of marriage than the marriage itself. Mm. Like there is so much into documenting everything. 
there is the the, the whole uh, uh, you know when halal bachelor parties and you have the, the bridal showers and you have this and you have that and each one of them would cost the yani, like an arm it would basically cost them a lot of money right now all these things and but subhanallah post the wedding time there isn't much focus on it so there is no premarital training there is no really conversation about their spousal roles, what expect of each other and so on. So they wait for it to be like training on the job. And that's why the way marriage is being conducted today is actually, is, is unfortunate, is, is an unhealthy situation. So when it comes to divorce, it's not like a textbook divorce anymore, like it used to be before. A lot of complex issues come into it, whether it's a, a matter of uh, uh, child support and custody, for example, when it comes to um, a prenuptial agreement or post, after that, when it comes to um, uh, you know keeping the even the role of both having healthy co-parenting, for example, all these things are just uh, becoming very dangerous in our community today. That is uh, causing so much damage. I think, Sheikh, it's it's a lot of it is that I, I don't think we can discount the collective trauma of the community too. That like when I go into a marriage, I know that. All these people in my circle it didn't work out and so i'm even going to project the doom of everyone around me so i'm already oh, yeah. my contingency plans are actually my primary plans marriage is just so let's see if this works or not and so it's transactional from the start and so if you're going into marriage and you're transactional then divorce is also going to be transactional of try course. to get as much money as you can try to get as, as much of your right as you can try to use the court system as much as you can try to get no. as much access to your kids as you can or or sometimes unfortunately the complete opposite of that like i don't really want the kids anymore but it 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 feels like the self-centeredness is like driving every single one of these problems at the end of the day absolutely and that's why unfortunately we forgot about and the quran is clear hold them kindly or at least them kindly and it has to be with with observing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala above us in marriage and in divorce as well too. I was but gonna to ask you, where's the taqwa in all this? I mean, if a person's marrying someone who is tardona dina, who someone who yeah, you're pleased yeah, yeah. with, then you would expect that there would be some sort of monitoring of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the marriage and even during the divorce. So much of the divorce mentioned in the Quran comes with bil ma'roof. With, well, with be, goodness. Because people unfortunately don't make this as a priority anymore. And I ask people to give even me... Even the religious folk. Quote, even quote. the religious folks. Yeah, even the religious folks. Right now, every time I go to um, uh, a youth program, for example, a university program, and talk about the subject of marriage and so on, every time we do that, you ask them a simple question, how many of you are single? All of them probably may raise their hands. Yeah. But then what was the big problem not, not to uh, being married? Say, we don't find suitable people. Yeah, how does that happen? Once again, we, we have a, a whole long list of criteria that didn't exist back then. Mm. See, I teach people, I said, look, when it comes to looking for, for, a, for a person for marriage, you have two circles. You have the, the, the primary circle, the main circle, and, the, and then you have the, the preference. So the primary circle is where you have your, your uh, main quality that you don't compromise. And the Prophet gave us two. Their relationship with Allah, the Creator, and their relationship with the people, the creation. Their deen and their akhlaq. As simple as that. Everything else is a matter of preference. So age, culture, background, socioeconomic status, all these things and so forth. Now a lot of people who are now getting married, they're bringing a lot of these preferences from the big circle and they put them into the small circle. So you have a long list of requirements. And the more the, the, the more expansive the list, the smaller the, the, the pool that you're dealing with, that you're going to find for yourself. And, and that's one of our issues. But when you look at what people are looking for, there's a long list. So taqwa becomes one out of many. And as a result, obviously, it got diluted. What level of taqwa are we talking about? What do you mean by taqwa to begin with? So that's, that's why it's missing. What about those people? Because I know it's 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 probably when we talk about like being imams, right? It's, the, it's almost the, the danger of being an imam is sometimes the generalizations don't fit people at all. Like you True. find sisters and brothers as well sometimes that are like incredible human beings. Yeah, and absolutely. They're just not they're, they're not able to find a spouse. That's true. I mean, Subhanallah. Once again, I think um, I, let's be real. One of the biggest problems we have is the the the, the visuals, the image, the body culture. We live in a, in a hypersexualized society. 
the the image, the body culture is sometimes is, the parents, and sometimes from the parents as well too. Yeah. So the among the young ones, usually it's actually the visuals are very very important, and as a result, they keep you know always wishing and waiting, and maybe this maybe this. So they don't do that. The second thing also comes specifically uh, from traditional households and cultural household. The parents they insist of someone from the same town, the same village, the same you know culture background and so forth and they keep pushing their children's you know marriage until it becomes unfortunately a, a hopeless case i know some guys who are in the past their 30s and they don't want to get married anymore because they just gave up on it unfortunately similarly we have a lot of ladies who are and so forth also as well too they're giving up on it um it's not like um we have a solution for this but that's the real problem that no one is really wants to talk about we are getting to that level where we have a a huge number of unmarried young men and women in their late 20s and, and 30s. And we don't seem to be having any infrastructure or system to help them out and uh, and find, find a suitable match for themselves. Now, what impact, Sheikh? I mean, we're, we're wrapping up until so we'll probably just have a couple more questions and so on and talk through this. What, what impact does this have on the future of Islam in America, the doubt? Oh, it has a big impact, obviously, subhanAllah. I mean, uh, one of the highlights of, uh, of, of the Muslim, Muslim tradition is the strength of the, of the nuclear family. If the, the, the family, the household is, is strong, it produces the, the believers, obviously. But if we are coming right now from broken homes, and uh, even if they're still together, but they're still unfortunately not in a healthy relationship, you can imagine who's going to put faith priority in that moment. Who's going to think about spirituality as a priority for themselves in that moment? They become on an emotional survival, really. They just want to kind of like keep managing, you know, their their household, their family. They 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 keep tiptoeing around each other. You're surviving, not thriving. Exactly. So it it really affects the quality of our community. Uh, in addition to that, of course, when young men and women they reach certain age and then eventually they realize they're not going to get married at all, and there is no really hope for them to get married in the community. I've seen a lot that many of these brothers and sisters, they start losing yani, their, uh, their faith. Women removing their hijabs, for example. Guys come, you know, outside on the social media, vocal uh, on their uh, new lifestyle that has nothing to do with Islam and so forth. It's, it's fitna. And may Allah make it easy for them, Ya Rabbi Alameen. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, we wish well for them. And, we, and I know we talk about this a lot. Like, honestly, this is our biggest concern. I mean, we've seen... It's like the veil gets gets lifted on the issues in the community. I mean, the first like shock for me was domestic violence, and we can't we don't have time to jump into that right now. But like, whoa, this is like a real issue in our community. You know, we've oh, seen yeah. not not more in our community than outside, but like, whoa, what's happening here? Like, I can't believe this is happening. It seems so so under the wraps, and then like the crisis of marriage now as as a whole and divorce as a whole. Subhanallah, because we don't want to, we don't want to end on complete pessimism here. We have to obviously respond with our resources and, and try to give specific resources to people with specific needs in this regard. Because not no. everyone's the same; everyone's no. struggling differently uh, in this regard. And we want to definitely be able to no. have the proper resources as community. And it can't just be on the imams. No. But I'll share this uh, especially to the you know with, with the young aspiring parents. You know, you talked about Imam Sabaj being your inspiration and, and things of that sort. Um, you know, when you were looking even at the TV set, like to me, like my greatest daddy was my dad. And he had no idea he was doing da'wah to me. Like as a young person that was very conflicted about faith, seeing the way that he treated my mother, may Allah have mercy on her, by his, by his character and how the deen engineered him, the of loyalty, course. the character, like that was the greatest da'wah that was being done to me. Ah. He didn't even know he was doing da'wah to his own son, right, no. in the process. but. We have to give our next generation a model they believe in, right? Like they've True. got to see Islam in their parents. They've got to see Islam in that generation. So if you're preaching a superior uh, way of life and a faith, but then in their own family life, in their own home, they're not seeing that superiority. In fact, they might even be seeing inferiority, the opposite. The opposite uh, yeah. Then that calls into question the entire system. True. All the khutbahs, all the stories of the Prophet them, all of that gets called into question, right? Now, there's a myth that religious people have uh, perfect households. You know, if you become religious, it's going to be amazing and so on and so on. But they're also human beings. Right. It's our responsibility, you know, uh, to make sure that our kids, alhamdulillah, see the right uh, image of Islam in our lives. 
as much as we can, obviously. And that's why when parents come on me for advice on parenting, and they ask me, a guy asked me, what is the best advice you can give me about parenting? I said, love their mother. That's the most important thing. And the same thing I give to the mother as well, too, because this is what the, the first thing your kids are going to grow up with, how, how life should look like, how they model their marriages in the future and so forth. That's important. But to the, to the good note, alhamdulillah, in regard to the subject of marriage we have in our communities, alhamdulillah, Rabbi Amin, you know, um, I think there's a new trend. I believe, alhamdulillah, a new trend. Uh, among young couples today to have, um, to do premarital uh, marriage, to premarital training yeah. before they get married. It's becoming easy. And in the past, I hardly had anybody coming for premarital training. Now, mashallah, it's more increasingly, alhamdulillah, Also, medical... Why is that important, Sheikh? Like, what do you look for? What does it help? It, it helps. For, for that person who's like, why do I need to do it? Because you can't drive your car without you know having a license you cannot go practice engineering or being doctor or this or that without doing so and so today you have to go through all this training to be qualified to do something right and then you have a lifelong experience you don't want to have any qualification any training for that i mean in the past we had to get that training just simply by observing our parents our uncles our aunts our siblings and so on so but the models we have around us are unfortunately not healthy anymore so it's better for us to have somebody who can teach us professionally. So that's why we teach them premarital training in which you study personalities. So you know the strength and weakness of each personality, what you need to worry about and need to keep in your mind. We talk about the phases of a relationship, how it evolves from, you know, from the being in love to being, you know, a real love. And then you go to this phase and that phase. So we learn exactly how it evolves. So they have a, a, a roadmap for them instead of just predicting it on the way in. Being and, surprised every time. Yeah, yeah right. It's like, uh, I didn't expect that. Well, that's the thing. They need to be prepared for this. And of course, part of the training is to learn about the most common problems young couple face in the first years of their marriage. Just like Hudayba radiallahu he said, uh, people used to ask the Prophet sallallahu about what was uh, uh, <laughs> good <laughs> and ask about the bad stuff. Yani. <laughs> like, I don't want to be caught up with that, with that thing. So I want to know what, what's right, what's wrong. So that's something we teach, alhamdulillah. And fadlullah azza wa jal, there's a beautiful uh, acceptance among the young people, fadlullah. And parents right now, mashallah, willing to invest in it. In the past, people, they say, you know, it's too much, too expensive, it costs this much money. I said, you haven't tried divorce. Seriously, it's yeah. so dangerous. Yeah. The other thing, alhamdulillah, I see that's something good news as well too for the community right now is the concept of prenuptial agreement. Many people, they have a negative feeling about it, but look, it falls under the shurut al-nikah in Islam. When you have conditions in the marriage contract, you can put whatever you want to put there as long as it's not haram. So here people come with assets before they get married. In this case, we help them kind of like keep, keep themselves, alhamdulillah, protected. Uh, because again, the reality is telling us that people are not trained uh, after divorce to be fair, unfortunately. So or civil. Or, or civil or human. something like that. So that's something right now people are becoming more accepting of that. Not that it's the best thing to do. But if someone has an asset that needs to protect... <laughs> you know, for themselves. They understand that if La Qadr Allah, the case was, was actually uh, uh, death, it has to go into inheritance. But if it was otherwise, then at least they're protected. It put them at ease when they come into a relationship. Obviously, again, it's not the ideal situation, but there's, a, there's much more understanding among young people to say, yeah, you know what, I, I, I have no problem with that. I can sign this agreement and so on. Yeah. And there's much more, of course, but Alhamdulillah, I think uh, we still have, mashallah, uh, hope. And, and the training we do, the people coming back to learn about it, and inshallah, it's gonna produce healthy families in the future, inshallah. Sheikh Hamad, you, you, have, you have a chance to ask one more question, I'm gonna do rapid fire with Sheikh Oh, Yassin. that's pretty much, um, I guess. Right. You ready, Sheikh Yassin? Jazakallah. You ready for this? No, I gotta do rapid fire. What? Right, questions. Oh, Actually, man. before that, I'm gonna ask Sheikh Hamad a question. <laughs> what town in Palestine is Sheikh Yassin from? I have no idea. No, you didn't even try. <laughs> <laughs> You've been there, you should have given yourself. I have no idea. He doesn't resemble any town and uh, it resembles guess. Al-Quds, Sheikh Yasser, Allah. Well, the reason Sheikh Omar is asking this question because his wife is from the same town. Oh, Allah. 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 Where are you from in Palestine? Tulkarab. Tulkarab, Yeah. So here are the rapid fire questions, okay. If you had to replace the other Imam at BRIC, who would you replace him with? Amma. 
Allah, خلاص. You were supposed we're gonna to need say, you to edit him out, crop you, him out from now. You were supposed to say you're irreplaceable. I never want to replace you. Yeah, thank you for giving me the lead for that. <laughs> you see how quickly he answered. <laughs> that was so fast. No, so you can come, but I'll move to. I'm not moving, moving to you. Look, Alhamdulillah, our, I heard you don't I even think, have an office. <laughs> I have an office. Mashallah, I think Alhamdulillah, Valley Ranch is really it's it's uh, um, it's not really one man thing. Alhamdulillah, it's the community and also Alhamdulillah the the, the leadership that we have uh, as as imams in the community. That just makes it unique. Alhamdulillah. So definitely, you you don't worry. We're not gonna replace you. Sorry, if there was one more place other than Dallas that you could live in the United States, what would it be? Off the top of your head, like what's another city you'd live in? Near the beach. Near the beach. Anywhere. New York. That's what he means. Jones Beach. Take you to Jones Beach. Some, yeah. Something, something warmer. A little bit. Beach where people don't curse at you for no reason. Just trying oh, to I mean, that's love, though. You know, I think, I think being near the water is, is essential because subhanAllah, it reminds you really with Jannah. The, the, the sound, the sound of the water is just a therapeutic, subhanAllah, and it's, it's beautiful. I think yeah. maybe I think about that because of the age factor right now. <laughs> you need to have quiet time. You need just to sit there, just nothing but listen to the waves and the that's wind blowing. Mashallah, it's so beautiful. Right, yeah, so this is the last question. This is a serious one. This is, I think it's a good one. A young, young person comes up to you and says they want to get involved in doing da'wah. Well, what's the first advice you give them in like a nutshell? You have an elevator conversation with a young person in the convention and says, Sheikh, I really want to get into da'wah. They need to learn to, to read the Quran better first. <clears throat> the first thing I tell them is to go actually to study, read the Quran. Have a Quran teacher. Let them teach you the Quran. And then I usually tell people to try to memorize Juz Amma and study the 40 hadith, uh, the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi. That's the most important thing. I think it's beautiful, the simplicity. Like we're doing the Alba Salihin for how many years now? And it's still finding it so much so much benefit, uh, so much benefit in the Alba Salihin. Alhamdulillah. He also gave us that advice maybe 10, what, 12 years ago. Same advice, memorize your zamma and the 40 hadith. Because if you ever need to give a khatir or khutbah or anything like that, you'll have that foundation at the very least. And I think also in addition to that, it's the discipline you're going you're gonna to really uh, uh, learn from doing that. If you don't have the stamina to stay there, to read how to recite properly and memorize Quran, and study the 40, 40 hadith, then we don't want you in the da'wah field. They're going to be an obstacle. But Sheikh, what if I, I don't want to be a teacher or anything like that. I want to be a... I want to be in the da'wah field in some other capacity, like I want to distribute food. Even then, I got to learn how to read the Qur'an? You should. I mean, obviously, not everybody is just like يعني, Ibn Mas'ud and Ibn Abbas, for example. Mm-hmm. There were people who are just very simple people. They didn't know that. So if a person is not in the capacity of teaching da'wah or talking to people about Islam, just only they want to, يعني, if they were told, do this, they do that, do this, do that, then alhamdulillah. The only thing we need for them is just to find a mentor to be under their guidance. Don't do it on your own. Jimmy. Wallahu alam. always says, don't go out it alone. No, so, to stay with the jama'ah as well. Absolutely. Stay with, uh, his, his most famous quote, Ya jama'ah. Ya jama'ah. So you got to stay with the group, stay with the jama'ah. We got to stay with each other. And that's what we're trying to do, Sheikh, even with this podcast, honestly, is just like try to reconnect people with some of the pioneers in the da'wah, some of the people in the da'wah. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, our success is going to be through, uh, of course, first and foremost, sincerity and being connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but no, also being no. connected to each other in that shuran and trying to, to draw insights. And no. I appreciate you being with us. Um, we'll see you tonight. I just want to make everyone jealous. I get to see Shafi. I said, MashaAllah. I'm jealous. MashaAllah. I'm telling you, man. On the camera. Back off. I'm a little threatened now. He said so quickly that he replaced me with you. I'm a little threatened right now. All right, Jerry. Right in front of the camera, man. Come to Dallas. InshaAllah. InshaAllah. We'll stay in Houston, but we'll come to Dallas more frequently. InshaAllah. Oh.